Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, today's guest comes to us from Hollywood, where he has been one of the top coaches and story experts since 1985. Michael Haig has worked with countless screenwriters, novelists, and filmmakers. He has consulted on projects starring, among many others, Will Smith, Morgan Freeman, Julia Roberts, Tom Cruise, and Reese Witherspoon. Michael is the best-selling author of Selling Your Story in 60 Seconds, as well as the 20th anniversary edition of his classic book, Writing Screenplays That Sell. His latest book, Storytelling Made Easy, is now available in both print and digital formats. In addition to his writing, Michael has presented seminars, lectures, and keynotes in person and online to more than 80,000 participants worldwide. So, Michael, it's great to have you on the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here and an honor. I appreciate getting asked. Yeah. Now, I'll admit up front that pitches are tough for me. When I read your book on um, selling your story in 60 seconds, I really picked up a lot of of stuff that I thought was helpful, not only for screenwriters, but also for novelists. And uh, so I appreciate that the principles, I feel like, um, would would work for, for anybody who might be listening. Yeah, that was the idea of that book. I mean, my book on screenwriting was obviously geared toward, you know, screenplays. But this was, I designed this for both novelists and screenwriters who, it's a particular kind of pitch, really. It's the situation where you're trying to get somebody to read your work. Um, You're probably not in that situation that much because you've been a very successful novelist for some time and had bestsellers and so on. So they're probably just say, when's it going to be ready, Stephen? But for those wanting to launch a career or earlier stages in their writing career, where the biggest thing is once you have a manuscript, how do you get somebody to take a look at it? That's really what I wanted to zero in on, is how when you've got a very short period of time, can you persuade somebody to add a a book to to a pile that they don't really even want to deal with they're sort of under duress but persuade them that this is going to be worth their time and has the potential to be a a blockbuster or a bestseller yeah and you know at at conferences this happens so often where you might meet up with an agent or producer or an editor or someone and and they'll just say well tell me about your book or tell me about your project or tell me about your screenplay or whatever you have and, you know, so many people, I, because I've been in these sessions where we try to coach people on what to say during their pitch uh, time. And, uh, again, I'm no expert, but at least I've been around the block enough to know kind of what might work and what, what might not work. But most people will just start launching into a summary of their story. And after reading your book, I was confirmed with my instinct that said that's not the right approach to use when you have 60 seconds. No, absolutely not. First of all, it's impossible. (laughs) As I sometimes like to say, you know, if you can tell your story in uh, five minutes, the usual time you're allotted at like a pitch fest or something, if you can tell your story in five minutes, you've got an idea for a five-minute movie. And so you can't do it. You can't tell the story. And what I find frequently happens in those situations is somebody's at a pitch fest or, or the pitching portion of a conference, like you're talking about. Sure. 
and and they they say okay five minutes and they start and they aren't even through talking about their story and somebody gives them the hook and say your five minutes is up but the idea is you want to succinctly convey it so during that five minute slot you have time to discuss it so the person you're pitching to can then ask questions and fill in the blanks they want to know but you've got to much more succinctly convey not the story but the promise the story holds to create an emotional experience for either the audience, if it's a movie, or the reader, the readers, if it's a novel. Now, that is a great principle that you bring up, is that emotional connection. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you have in mind when you refer to that? Well, the... the uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling because I'm like, it's like you just asked me to tell you my story. Now I'm going to get long-winded <laughs> telling you because as soon as you just talk about emotion, it's the such thing a is big emotion topic, sure. is what storytelling is about. I mean, the whole right. idea, the whole, no matter what the stated reasons are that one book's a bestseller and the other novel ends up in the remainder pile or never gets published is more likely. And the difference between a successful movie and one that, never gets made or never goes anywhere is the successful story created an emotional experience for the mass audience. That's why we go to the movies. That's why we read novels to feel something. And so you can't, it's not easy to create an emotional experience in 60 or 120 seconds with a pitch. But what you can do is you can uh, give a sense of what that emotional experience will be for the mass audience. And if, if I hear enough about, the, uh, about your manuscript to think, wow, readers would really like to read that. Readers would really get engrossed in that. They would be scared. They would be worried and, or suspenseful, or they would fall yeah. in love, or they would be turned on, or they would be excited, or whatever emotion you're trying to elicit. That's the manuscript I'm going to be interested in. And, and, and it, but the same principle applies when you're actually writing the novel. I, I mean, at the end of the day, there's this one giant litmus test, and that is, is what you've put on the page going to be emotionally involving for the reader, or are you going to lose them? Are they going to that, – that's why readers turn the page, because they're feeling something, or they're, an, or, or they're anticipating an emotional experience with what's about to happen. I love how you put that, and I've had other guests on the show, and very often this idea of emotional connection comes up, but it's maybe fuzzy for some people, but to you, it's very clear and also so essential. And um, w when you're coaching um, either your screenwriters or the other writers that you might work with, what are what are some of the hints that you give them for em evoking that emotional connection with the story um, and in other words like when we when we write we want people to identify with say the main character or the situation he's in um, and often I do that through um, shared experience that the that the reader might have with the character in the story or shared desire so or maybe a universal desire for freedom or happiness or or for adventure or security or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you try to emphasize when you coach and work with um, different writers? Um, the, well, first of all, in terms of uh, the emotion, I, that's, as I said, what everything's about. And the core principle 
I sort of, you know, try to convey or stand by is that your goal is to elicit emotion, and emotion grows out of conflict. Um, okay. Sure. I, I've begun uh, reading your book, Story Trump Structure, and I loved when you when you it was sort of like the very first thing you said when you talk about the ceiling fan story. Oh, sure. And I yeah. love that. I I'm 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 just sorely tempted to steal it <laughs> because it's such a good illustration. And I think I will, but I will give you credit. But that idea. Oh, you're that, welcome uh, to the use. The teacher <laughs> asks the question. You know, we all got asked in school, "How did you spend your summer vacation?" And everybody's nodding off because they hear about your trip to Disneyland or your family went to camp or whatever. But one smart teacher said, tell me something that went wrong this last summer. And a kid tell, talks about jumping off the bed and and jumping so far that he got his head stuck in the ceiling fan and got knocked against the wall or something. And And I love that because if you – if let's say you're thinking about a movie you loved – and you're thinking, what were the moments that really grabbed you in this movie? Chances are very good that what you're remembering is a situation where the hero was up against some huge obstacle or that we were anticipating an obstacle to come, which is sort of the core, the essence of all suspense thrillers and horror and so on. It's what lies around the corner or the, the monsters waiting and sure. so on. Or... It's a feeling of fulfillment that comes after overcoming a conflict, like when uh, the, in a romantic comedy the, the two finally kiss for the first time or finally make love for the first time or something like that. It's those moments of conflict that are going to create those emotional experiences. Um, and the second part of your question had to do with empathy. <clears throat> and what I emphasize with empathy is the... it. it it's still based on conflict. I maintain that there, there are like three or four very powerful ways to create empathy when you first introduce your hero, especially, or your protagonist. One is to get us to feel sorry for the character, make that character the victim of some undeserved misfortune. One is to put that character in jeopardy, so we're worried about the character because we empathize, we connect with, we identify with people we worry about or people we feel sorry for. The third is make that character likable. Specifically, that means they are loving, good-hearted, kind, generous. They're good to other people. They're a good parent, a boss that respects their employees or whatever it might be. And then the fourth is they are highly skilled. They're very good at what they do. And if you think about it, those four things, which you can see evidenced in you know, a gazillion movies, they all have yeah. to do with conflict. We feel sorry for someone because of conflict they have either faced in the past, if we find out about a wound from the past, or they're suffering from right now. They're in poverty or they're suffering from some medical condition or or they've uh, they've just lost a loved one so we first meet them when they're grieving the jeopardy means it's conflict that is coming in the future they're about to lose a job they're about to get evicted uh, we we've been introduced to the villain who wants to kill them their likability comes from how they help others deal with their conflicts and the highly skilled is how they have some talent that enables them to overcome obstacles that we wouldn't generally be able to, as in taken. 
we I, we empathize partly with Liam Neeson's character, not just because her daughter was kidnapped, but because that wonderful moment in the phone where he says, I have a set of skills. You don't want to do this. <laughs> I'm going to come after you, and I'm going to kill you. And we love having identifying with heroes that can get the job done because we kind of fantasize, geez, I'd love to do that. And on the pages of a novel or watching the movie, we emotionally have the experience of having that ability. So it's all about conflict, even in creating the connection to your character for me. Now, that's great. I, um, I usually emphasize unmet desire or tension, and I think it's along the same lines. It's just maybe a different way of referring to it. Um, and uh, I, I think of, you know, let's say that someone is fishing and they they cast out and they're trying to catch a, a you know, a big muscalunge or a big mu- musky fish or whatever. And so they cast out. Well, the fish grabs hold and starts pulling in one direction and then you're pulling in the other and only one of you is going to get what you want. Either the fish is going to end up in the boat or the fish is going to end up free and the other person is not or the other character is, is not going to get what they want. Um and that sometimes I think that uh, whenever we have this pursuit of desire, desire-infused pursuit, um, that 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 is that's central to it. Uh, I think of sometimes as someone might say there's a marriage in in crisis, um, or that there's conflict within marriage. But sometimes in a marriage, people will just sort of say, "All right, look, I'm putting up with it. I'm just not even going to worry about it." They just resign themselves to the fact that they that there's conflict. Well, there's intention at that point because they've said, you know, I'm just going to put up with it and I'm not going to pursue anything different. And so I think um, this idea of conflict that we can identify with, conflict that we can cheer for the character for, or conflict that is something that's being pursued is, is central really to just about any type of story. Yeah. I, I wish I could argue with anything you said, and I can't. Everything uh, <laughs> you said is, is I'm in absolute agreement. I, yeah. I mean, I, 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 say, I sometimes say story is built on like a three-legged stool, or there's three key elements. There's character, there's desire, and there's conflict. Yeah. And, and, we, and you have to have all three. And I don't know if I'd say they're equally important because it's beyond importance, it's necessity. Because a character with a desire and no obstacles to it, it's a story. It's just a story nobody's going to want to experience because there's no emotion. <laughs> a desire and a conflict with no character, I don't know where that comes from if a character doesn't want it. And if yeah. you take away the desire and, and you have a character, if you have a that's kind of what you just described, right, a character yeah. and a conflict with no desire. It's they're tolerating. Now, yeah. when we meet a, a hero, I, I, I use the term hero for protagonist. That could be a sure. man, woman, boy, girl. But when we meet a hero, there you can create a character who is um, not pursuing a desire. They are tolerating something very often. But then your job as the storyteller is to create some, what I call an opportunity. Something has to happen that kicks that character out of tolerating, out of a state of uh, a static uh, uh, existence, and forces them to 
to, to take action, to react to that. And in the reacting to that, they will formulate a goal, and that goal is going to carry us through the, through the story. I mean, on the simplest form, in a thriller, um, the, we might meet a cop or a private eye or even a hitman or whatever it might sure. be, and we're introduced to their everyday life in a way to create that empathy. But then uh, somebody discovers a dead body. And so then, then we're off to the races because they may, because they may have been sort of passive or not doing much to begin with. But if you don't kick them into gear and make them proactive very quickly, then we haven't got anything to root for. Then, then, then we're just watching somebody pass the time, and that's not going to be emotional. Yeah, I've seen that in um, some shows with what people might refer to as the anti-hero or something, where he starts off and he has all these great gifts and abilities, but he's not doing anything. And then he's, some people refer to it like the call to adventure, refusal of call, all this kind of stuff. But but after a while, I'm like, I don't want to watch someone who's the hero, who's just moping around, um, you know, working in a job he doesn't care about. I want to see him thrown into something and tested, and I want to see him rise to the occasion. And and so sometimes when those, like a pilot will come out for a show, and I'm, you know, 40 minutes into it, and he's still moping around, so I'm like, get get him moving because I'm bored and I don't want to see. <laughs> get on with it. Get on. Get with on it. with Turn the, the chair. I'm Move flipping. I'm flipping. Now. Um, one of the things that you've um, you've been consulting for many years in Hollywood, um, successfully consulting with screenwriters, and um, your book, Writing Screenplays That Sell, has an approach to doing that. Now, I, I haven't read that book, but I'm curious. Uh, some books that I've seen on screenwriting and so on really are focused on kind of a structural format, like a three-plot or four-plot, uh, or I mean, excuse me, three-act or four-act plot. Um, what's your approach or what's your um, opinion of kind of that approach? Um, yeah, I'm, 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 very, I'm very much a member of that or whatever you would say. Actually, sure. in my book, Writing Screenplays That Sell, uh, as you said, it's the, the 20th anniversary edition came out, I think, four years ago. So now it's been 24 years since the first edition was written, and then I've changed it a couple times along the way, the latest uh, being this 20th anniversary. But that doesn't go into plot structure. It does, but I, get, I developed a much more um, focused approach to structure after that, and uh, that's not in book form yet. That's the next book I'm going to oh, be okay. writing, but it okay, is great. available. Uh, I did a video, actually, with an associate friend of mine, Chris Vogler, who takes a Joseph Campbell mythical oh, yeah. the story. It's called The Hero's Two Journeys, and the two journeys being the outward journey of accomplishment that follows a structure, the plot, and then the inner journey of transformation that's about the character's arc. So so I developed this approach to structure. Chris accuses me of being fairly rigid about it, and uh, I, I claim, well, not so much, but he's a more fluid sort of guy. But I very, I say in my approach, there are six stages to any well-structured story. 
And I'll admit that when I first saw your book or saw the title, because I was after I was invited, I I started reading it and looking at it. I was I thought, oh, because I can tell right from the title, maybe you you're not you're not a fan of you know structural formula. And after re- I, I've only just been able to start, so I haven't read you know sure. a lot, but I've already read enough to see that's probably true. Whereas I like structural formulas because I like to give somebody, a, a, give writers uh, and filmmakers a kind of template and say, and yeah. my attitude being that when you can look at uh, you can look at the a hundred. Uh, successful box office films and see that more than 90 of those follow these six stages, then it's probably something worth paying attention to and emulating. So I do like that idea of having um, a structured layout that one can follow or use as a guide as they develop their story. When I was started reading your book, where I, when I realized I probably didn't have that much to worry about is when <laughs> I is when I got to the point where I realized, okay, well, we're in complete agreement, and that is, you, the for, you don't, you don't sacrifice story for a formula. The idea of the formula is as a guide, so you, so you're not just fa- facing a blank page and trying to figure out well what's going to happen next. Well, what should I do now? Where does sure. it go now? Just because what my experience has been with writers is. When they start doing that, their story actually becomes very complicated because it's like, well, I don't know what should happen, so I'm going to add a new plot element here, and I'm going to here. Let's bring in a new character. Let's have an alien invade. Let's let's uh, let's you know give the hero a pony or whatever it might yeah. be, and pretty soon it's very complicated. Where stories that are successful, in my opinion, particularly movies, are very simple. So what I like is to say, as you're developing this, come up with all the ideas, but then start thinking about them in terms of these six stages, in terms of the five turning points that delineate one to the next, and use that as a guide. But sometimes I will have, because the people who who have been to my classes or worked with me or or seen that video or so on, they know about, they really are trying to follow the six stages. They'll say, I'm really worried because you say that uh, turning point number two should be at the 25% mark, but mine is all the way at 28%. <laughs> I, say, I say, okay, first of all, let me hold the space of structure. I, I know this pretty well because I developed it, but also that's not how it works. I will say that if you look at your story after you've laid it all out and discover that your hero is not pursuing the goal that defines the story until the midpoint, something's wrong. And the further you, the further you move away from the percentages I apply to the turning points, the more you might be concerned because you're moving further and further away from what has proven successful. But at the end of the day, it's you're back to your number one goal. It's about eliciting emotion. Right. And you can see movie after movie that may generally follow my six stages or, or, or you know, the hero's journey model or, or Eric Edson's 22 to 24 hero goal sequences, whatever it might be. But really good movies are almost always going to bend or break some of those rules 
But my contention is, and I can ask you this too to see if you agree, my belief is that the people who are good at breaking rules understand the rules. They're not people that go into it saying, I don't want to be hampered by any rules, so I'm just going to do whatever I please and hope, and, and it'll work out great. Yeah, you know, I think that we can call them rules or storytelling principles. There certainly are. I kind of think of them as like narrative forces. In other words, like you have believability, you have causality, you have escalation, desire, you have all these things. And almost picture like a big ball of clay, and all of them are pressing in on the, the ball of clay. And in each scene, you have to evaluate, okay, well, I need to keep the scene believable, but I also need to escalate it. How can I do them both, or which... Do I need to sacrifice at this moment of the story in order to move things forward? And so then the clay is end up it gets gets shaped by those questions and those decisions that you make regarding all of the those aspects of, of story. And so I feel like on on I tell people sometimes on every page of your story you'll have to break quote one rule or whatever. Is that there are you know Someone might say, well, you always have to shoot for brevity or you always have to have escalation. And there are moments where you you don't do that. So, yeah, I would say that understanding what lies at the heart of story, and I don't know, we may be actually in agreement on this one specifically, but the more you understand story, the less you'll have to outline or plot out or structure. That's my view. Um, is the more that you really understand, you know, where a story, what, what lies at the heart of a story, um, then the less you'll have to write up a plot outline. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I'd have to. I don't know if I agree with that or not. And the reason isn't because I I kind of consider outlining um, a question of preference and and what what works best for an individual writer. Sure. Um, which isn't contradicting what you said at all. It yeah. may be that those who don't need outlines just have internalized from reading a lot of novels or watching a lot of movies what needs to be there, and then it's able to, they're able to bring it up and out and on the page without actually laying it out first. But for me, it's more a question of some writers just say, I want to dive in. I, I want yeah. to write fade in, and I'm going to start writing and see where it goes. And other, I know writers who say, I would no more do that. If I did that, I'd never finish anything because I need <laughs> the security of an outline. So yeah. I just say, okay, try them both. Whatever works best, that's what you should do. I do, though, then say, whichever you choose, sooner or later you've got to pay the piper. And the piper is, you better then look back at it and say, okay, is this following a structure or this is the sequence of events such that the emotion is going to steadily rise or the involvement is going to increase more and more effectively as it moves forward and sure. if it isn't or if you're not conforming or using as a guide my six stages then take a look and say well where is it where is it it's it and in that regard it's more of a tool to figure out what might be going wrong so no, no, let's say yeah, you're no, let's say it. you're working on one of your novels and you're feeling like I don't know it seems like there's a stretch of it somewhere in the middle that I you you start worrying and you don't know why but it feels like it's lagging or it feels like it's taking too long then sure. I might say well 
one of the what one of my key turning points is what I call the point of no return, which is the midpoint of the story. And I say at that point the hero has to do something that shows that they are now fully committed to the goal that they had that they began pursuing at the beginning of Act Two or at the one quarter mark. So are they making a bigger commitment? Has something occurred that they are now putting everything at stake rather than one foot in and one foot out? So it may be that knowing that principle and looking at your story, you might say, okay, you know, that's right. I haven't done that. So what can I do to increase the commitment of my hero around here? Yeah. And if I do that, is that going to increase the emotional experience? Is that going to uh, is that going to counteract the feeling I had that things were getting a bit monotonous? That's a that's to me a great way to use a formula or the chart I I have that I'm going to mention to people later and so on. Is sure. it might as you go keep sort of in mind yeah I want to be thinking about this, but don't don't write your story or certainly not the first draft. Don't write it using a ruler. Just write it out. But then now you have some principles that you can apply. And forget structure. It's the same with the principles you you talk about so skillfully in your books. And that is sometimes you want to be thinking about it first, but also it's that second draft and that third draft and those rewrites where you can say, okay, where something's not right here. Or I'm getting this yeah. kind of feedback. What principles have I forgotten? What are some... What are some things Stephen talks about that I could apply to this that maybe that could um, rectify the problems that people were having with my draft, but they didn't know how to express? Yeah, I think in a big sense we're probably talking about the same types of things, whether you call them principles or plot points or structure or whatever. I might call them narrative forces, but really helping people to understand, you know, as you move through a story, certain things happen. And the more that you understand the importance of those things and the impact of those things, the better story you'll probably be able to tell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, 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 I think a lot of times, in my experience, it is very rare for me to encounter someone who, who really understands story that I disagree with in any fundamental way. Chris Vogler, who wrote The Writer's Journey that I mentioned, who follows a mythical model, we uh-huh. I had the pleasure of doing a weekend event called the Screenwriters Summit with him and John Truby and Linda Sager and Sid Field because we're all sort of, we've now become sort of the old guard of script consultants in Hollywood. <laughs> we're, we're, we're just a couple of steps from any Mount Rushmore type thing and just becoming fossilized, I suppose. But we got to travel all over the place and do this weekend event. And as Chris used to say, look, we're all looking at the same movies. We just look at them through different windows. So sure. you might you and and so my way when I look at story, when I look at movies, when I extract or try and guide people, probably the thing that that interests me most or that draws me in most is character and particularly the psychology of the characters. For Chris, he looks at it through a prism of mythology and yeah. for John Truby he looks at it through a prism of genre as well as structure but he's heavy into genre and the different needs of different genres and you look at it you look at it for one thing as a working novelist which none of us were really working screenwriters we were all consultants 
not so much people who wrote scripts ourselves. So we all have, we all bring our slant to it, and we all then add our own terms. Sure. Okay, so yeah. I talk about point of no return. Somebody else might say, you know, something else. And you talked about story forces and, and so on. But that's just so, so we can have a word to refer to as we're trying to explain things. But that's just jargon. That doesn't yeah. matter. At the end of the day, it's really all those core issues of desire and conflict and emotion. Now, I want people, I want to make sure that we um, do point people to where you have these six, either the video or the, the six principles that you mentioned a, a couple minutes ago. Do you, do you have those uh, you know, on a website or in one of your books or products? that you could let our listeners hear about? I'm, I'm so happy you asked. <laughs> As luck would have it, I do. Okay, uh, let me say it this way. Um, the, the, to, to get to that and to find out about the six stages and my approach to structure and my approach to carrier, character and so on, the best thing people could do is go to my website. It's storymastery.com because there you can access a lot of my articles or blogs or interviews and so on that talk about an abundance of these things. As far as the six-stage process that I'm talking about and that inner journey, outer journey thing, there's a video, there's also an audio version that I did with Chris called The Hero's Two Journeys. When you go to my website, you can just go to the store, look at the products and see that and you know purchase the video or the audio version of that or the streaming video version whatever you like but for the people listening to this podcast we i'm i'm making an offer there's like a a freebie if you'd like to download a chart that lays out the six stages and the five turning points and also shows how they relate to the inner journey to character arc and not just to the plot you can get that for free just go to storymastery.com slash six stage chart and then you can just download the chart okay, it's, great. it's numeral it's six finished. so it's storymastery.com slash six stage chart with a numeral six excellent no that's great yeah I um I love hearing different people who come from different perspectives or backgrounds and um for me it's I just want to listen to what they have to say and kind of, you know, throw in my ideas but but um it, when you mentioned all those people I was like that would have been a great I would have loved to go to that conference. Linda's well, been on the show in yeah, the past as you, well. You can so. you can see it anyway cuz now it's yeah. on video. I sh- I I was imagining as I was just announcing that if, I was wondering if you were rolling your eyes or your stomach was turning as soon as I used the word chart, because I have a feeling the idea of having a chart with percentages and vertical lines and so on, that might be something of anathema to you because I, I sense <laughs> that you don't really like that kind of rigidity and so on. So so we'll see. I, I'll, I'll check in and see if you're one of the people who downloads <laughs> the chart if you just can't bring yourself to do it but again it's it's a it's not a slide rule you know this this right. isn't nuclear physics it is a formula it is to me a formula means 
a way of doing something consistently to get consistent results. It is something that has proven to be effective, but it isn't it isn't a hard and fast set of rules. It's a guide. It's, it's yeah. tips. And and I should add one thing that might make you a little more more prone to download it. I was talking about percentages, like something happens at 10% or 25. Those are movie percentages where we're talking right. about a more formulaic um, writing form. Uh, movies do need to conform to those. Novels, not so much. Um, I think that something should happen around the midpoint in an effective novel, and usually does. I think there are there is something about what happens in one quarter. But novels have some advantages, or maybe you'd say disadvantages. Sometimes there's there's a benefit to formula because you know exactly what you're supposed to do. But novels are much more fluid. For one thing, novels have a much easier time of dealing with time. Mm-hmm. Um, you could you could open your novel and then you can very smoothly fill in the backstory of a character and then you might jump ahead or you can cut away to another character and come back and 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 so and novels are not necessarily designed to be in, experienced in one sitting so people are used to coming and going and so on whereas movies it's one sitting it's more focused it's much shorter generally and it and it needs that much more rigid kind of approach um and not to mention that novels can go in and outside of characters thoughts and you can have an omniscient narrator and all those other things so the the percentages go away but you still i think can benefit as a novelist from from understanding the six stages that somewhere need to be in there and are somehow in in a sort of chronological order even if you do open in the middle of the story and then in a movie what would be flashback and fill in what preceded it before we get back to that exciting moment that you opened with. Yeah, I was thinking of one of my novels called The Queen, and the last 290 pages ends up being 24 hours. And the first, it's about a 530-page book, I think. So it's so, like, really the third act is 290 pages out of 500. And the first if you were to say the first two acts would be less. And so, you know, some people say, oh, the third act has to be this percentage or that percentage. And I think I I wouldn't have been able to tell the story if I thought in those terms. But but I think you're right that, that it is, it, you know, it depends. If you're writing a 300-page book, you might have fewer acts. If you're writing a 600-page book, it might be more. And... And um, but a two-hour movie is going to have similar beats and similar, probably number of of acts and so on, just because of the time that it takes to set them up and to play them out. Yeah, and one other thing. Uh, now I haven't I haven't read uh, that book of yours, but it it may be that I wouldn't agree that that act began at the start of that last 24 hours, because that's not so much how I would define an act in, yeah. in, ta- in, in, in the six-stage approach I'm talking about. If you, I sort of, the, the, the first exposure I had to three-act structure with, with Sid Field and his book Screenplay, and I always sort of stayed with that. So the first act is the first 25% of a movie, and then the middle 50 is act two, and the last is, the last 25 is act three. But in terms of dramatic structure for me, the 
the act, the end of the act would be when your hero faces some major setback. And on the inner journey level, in terms of the character's transformation, in terms of the character's arc, that will usually then precipitate some kind of retreat, some attempt by the hero to go back to where they were at the beginning of the story, if you have a character arc. I realize in, uh, uh, because you're, you're, the, the series you have related to chess pieces, they have the same hero, right, in each one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that might so, be different, and we could probably spend a whole show talking about <laughs> that series, and you should, because I think that would be interesting. But if you have a series character, it, 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 it would usually be very difficult in every novel to have them go through an arc. But maybe you have. But let's say you know, it's a standalone for some yeah, reason, yeah. And, yeah. or let's say it's a movie where the character is going to transform. They're going to have this inner journey, and they're going to complete an arc then the beginning of that arc is where they're living a safe but unfulfilled existence, armored, you know, wearing a lot of armor that protects them emotionally from pain, that what I call their identity. So at the end, the the moment that I would define as the beginning of Act 3 is when an obstacle the hero faces makes it seem like all is lost, that their their desire to to achieve that goal that defines the story is going to seem now impossible, and that they're going to retreat, not just kind of give up on that goal in some way or pull back, but they're also going to try and retreat and go back to where they were at the beginning before they had begun the arc that has gradually been changing them. So as they become, through the course of the story, emotionally more and more vulnerable, but getting closer to their truth, they're evolving positively, but now this setback is going to throw them for a loop, and they're going to say, usually there's going to be a moment where the character thinks or says, I should have known better. I knew I shouldn't do this. I knew I shouldn't fall in love with this person. I, I knew I'd get my heart broken if it's a love story, romantic comedy. So they'll try and go back, and it won't work, so then they'll make a final push. So what would be interesting is to see in your novel if if there's any moment closer to let's say the one quarter marker that i would look at for the beginning of act three some but it's somewhere in that 24-hour period but maybe not at the very beginning of it did did that make any sense or did i just go off on a tear i don't know i i because i don't write it's so interesting because I don't write with an, any number of acts in mind. Some of my books I feel like have three or four, two or nine, or it, it just, I don't think in those terms. And so it is very interesting to me. Um, and when you were talking about transformation, I think that you, there's a subtlety there that you touched on, and that is when you have a series character, he's not transformed into something different each time that he appears. Uh, he might learn something or, or as a result of the adventure that he's been on, but um, but the, in the case of my s- stories, the FBI agent Patrick Bowers, he's not completely different person and transformed in that way. But I do always have that inner question, that inner turmoil, some question that he's tackling or wrestling with throughout the story, and I feel like it. You need that to have depth to your characters instead of just trying to solve the outer, you know. The other story, and then oh, yeah. here he comes yeah, back. Yeah, at a, at a, I mean, in movie terms, you can get away with no inner journey if the movie has enough conflict externally. So you can have big-budget 
sci-fi, big action, comic book hero kinds of movies. And if there's enough fireworks and enough visible obstacles to overcome, and, and you can do that in fiction too. If it's, if it's just a page turner that's exciting enough, one chapter to the next, then that probably fits the bill. But if you're writing anything that doesn't depend on those kind of big physical obstacles, I think it's almost a necessity to go inside the character and start bringing up some kinds of inner conflict, some tug of war between, yeah. and the tug of war in my, the, that I talk about most when I, which I love getting into the character arc. And again, this may not apply to your series hero, but the tug of war is almost always between being safe and unfulfilled or living a fulfilled life, but being terrified. Hmm. And and are you going to find the courage to live your truth, even though some wound in the past made you believe or for or forced you to create some emotional armor that that to you becomes the most terrifying thing to do? On the simplest level, you can look at love stories that way. Um, oftentimes, someone you know grew up in a tough home or had their heart broken or whatever and now they refuse to fall in love again hitch the romantic comedy is a movie like that and the question is is he going to find the courage to step out of this kind of static unfulfilling emotional existence of sleeping around and risk allowing himself to fall in love with the woman who's his destiny knowing that he could get his heart broken again mm. and so that's the, the sort of essence of an arc and and that's and and it but if even with a series character if you uh, as you say there needs to be some kind of tug of war some kind of choice that the hero faces that is going to be i think frightening to them in some way it might be a tug of war between doing what's right and doing what's expedient it might be a tug of war between deciding do i is what's right what society says is right or do i need to formulate my own definition of justice or whatever but i agree with you i think if I think the best novels and the best movies always go inside the character to look for that inner conflict that you talk about tension. It's the same thing. It's the tension that exists within them where they are facing a moral dilemma or some sort of choice that involves emotional courage. And I think that's a great point to bring up too, is that moral dilemma. I teach the same kind of an idea that if, I'm, some people teach that you should have a theme, and I mean, I don't know that we have time to really talk about the pros and cons of that, but rather than writing from a theme like justice, I always like to write from a dilemma, like what's more important, truth or justice? And as soon as you can get into that idea of a moral complexity and the idea of moral dilemma, there's tension right there. There's tension already. It's drama. It It isn't like me trying to prove a point to you that you should forgive people. Well, how do you forgive someone who's done the unforgivable? Or what does it mean to forgive yourself, if anything? Well, what does that mean? So I love those stories where there's a question or a dilemma, moral dilemma, like you said, that really drives us deep into the story, into characters. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think when when you ask someone what's the theme and they have a one-word answer, <laughs> I'm always a little suspect because that's not what constitutes a theme to me. That might yeah. be an arena to explore. 
Um, hmm. But, but nice. it, you know, like, but the way you said, what, what's your theme, justice? Well, if you can't tell me more than that, I want, I want to know what is it you want to say about justice. The way I define theme, and it's not, it's just, again, jargon. It's not the way everybody would. But I usually want to ask, what, what, what are you saying to your reader about how we should live our lives? What are you standing up for here? So, so if it's just, well, you know, the, the, these are choices we have, I, I feel the best stories come down on one side or another. Or at the very least, they say to live a full life, you have to be willing to confront this choice and not pretend like it's all made for you or it's not important. Yeah. So, so that to me is... To me, the connection between character arc and theme is whatever arc the hero goes through, the movie or the novel is saying that it's professing um, a, uh, a belief that we, that's how we should live our lives. The, so themes are things like, you know, uh, to, to be fully evolved, to be fully individuated, you have to stand up for your own truth regardless of what other people think. That's a theme to me. And, yeah. and, and portraying a character that has to find the courage to actually do that, to stand up for herself in spite of her fear that everybody else is going to reject her or whatever, that makes it a powerful story. Because now you've got that two levels of conflict, external and internal. Right, yeah. No, that's great. That's very interesting. Um, when you when you are working with the writers that you help to coach and and actors and and so on, what are some of the things that you're seeing? Um, maybe the com- most common mistakes that screenwriters are making today. And um, do you have any insights on uh, you know kind of where things are going or why? why those mistakes keep being made? Um, well, I like to think they keep being made because not enough people have read my books. Exactly. That was <laughs> a very good kind of self-serving, isn't it? I have no. to admit, Stephen, that may be ego-driven. That no, no, I like it. That's a great yeah. answer. Um, but, uh, well, as, as, let me answer the first part of the question. What do I see as the common mistakes? Um, it kind of do, they, they, and it'll be interesting to see if you find the same thing, and when you lecture or work with other writers and so on. But they kind of, they're kind of tiers of mistakes. So there are the beginner things, and then there are the more experienced writer things, and then it gets, you know, goes beyond that further and further. Um, at the very rudimentary level, if I'm if I'm working with screenwriters, one of the big questions is it doesn't seem like they've asked themselves, is anybody going to go see this movie? Because <laughs> they've come up with an idea that is interesting to them, or it's the story of how their great-grandmother escaped from the Cossacks, or whatever it is, and it's like, really? What, but where, where's the universality? Not universality of plot. I, I don't think it's, it's necessary that the audience have any personal experience of what the hero is having, but they have to have a common emotional experience. They have yeah. to feel, uh, they have to know what it's like to want something they can't have. They have to know what it's like to be afraid that, that fear stands in the way of desire, whatever that might be. So why do you think that this is going to, I mean, if it's movies, for a movie to make money, you know, thousands and thousands of people have to pay to see it. That's something to, you have to think about, and it's as if 
commerciality isn't even considered. I don't think commerciality should be the instigator or the, the, the foremost driver of the story, but I yeah. think you have to figure out a way to tell whatever story or theme you want to deliver in a way that is going to have empathetic characters and enough conflict and enough of those emotional components that people are really going to, you know, it's going to have good word of mouth. So there's that. As it gets more down the line, as with more experience, the, probably the number one problem is one I mentioned before, and that is most stories I encounter are just way too complicated. And, and it's the understanding that stories, in my mind, are very simple. I, I generally defy anybody to name a successful movie, meaning box office successful, because critical acclaim is something kind of amorphous. But you can yeah. measure box office, and I defy anybody to come up with a highly success, box office success movie that can't be described in one sentence, that you can't convey what the through line of the story is in a single sentence. Hmm. Um, and, and I think that's something to strive for. To me, complicated is bad. Complexity is good. Complexity is when you add layers to a character. Complexity is when you show different dimensions of your environment or the human condition or the story you're telling. So uh, an example would be like the movie Inception. To me, that's, that's a complex story. A lot of things are going on and there's a lot of thought required, but on its primary level it's a very simple story about a group of people who wants to penetrate a person's dreams to get them to sign a contract hmm. and that's it yeah. and so everything is built on that single through line so complexity is another thing um another thing and this this is true across the board it's just overwritten too wordy too much dialogue uh, too many uh, it, it's it's a weird combination of too many words but a lack of specificity and vivid hmm. description <laughs> so yeah, it's not yeah. creating great images but it's taking a lot of verbiage to do that and i think uh, with again this is one way when my hollywood experience is a bit different than my experience with novelists but sometimes novelists can go crazy because they don't even have the 120 page limit <laughs> They can just add a new 100 pages and be that much wordier, and I don't think that's the right approach. So it's those things, and then on the highest level, it's really going deep with the character and really knowing and being and understanding the characters you've created. To really be able to to know them well enough that you can say, I know this is how this character would behave in this situation, or at least I I understand what and what they're afraid of and why. That was a great answer. Uh, this has been a, I can't believe that our time is is up. This has been a super conversation. I've really enjoyed your insights and. It's so funny because some people might say, oh, Steve wrote a book on against structure and Michael wrote a book for it or something. But I feel like we both have the same passion, that is to tell great stories well. Yeah, you and didn't write a book against that. structure. What oh, you wrote a book about was how you can't, it, you can't worship at the altar of structure. There and, you go. I like that. Good That's story. a good description. Structure yeah. is a tool. You know, yeah. everything yeah. you talk about in your book, and I haven't even read that much of the book, but I, I bet anything I'm right. Everything you talk about is here are more tools that are going to help you connect with your readership in a stronger, more meaningful way. 
Okay. Exactly. And so yeah. you, I bet I could point to any of the suggestions you make in that book and say, well, do you say this should happen every single time? And you'd say, no, that's ridiculous. This is a tool. Yeah. And it's a tool you now have to use as you can or as you wish to to strengthen your story. It's the same thing. So you're not against structure. If anybody says <laughs> that to me, I'll punch them. Um, we mentioned earlier, but I wanted to mention again your website. It's storymastery.com, and there are products there. People, Is your um, uh, speaking schedule there, like if people wanted every, to yeah, catch you at a conference? Yeah, everything is there. Um, okay, yeah, great. My, uh, my upcoming seminars. Um, also, one thing we didn't mention, I'll say it very quickly, but my latest book, Storytelling Made Easy, that's for, those are storytelling principles and a process for creating story for people who are in the business arena, like public speakers or business leaders or marketers or, um, or coaches and consultants, people who aren't professional storytellers but want to use story to acquire clients, to inspire people from the stage, and so on. And there's information about that, too. Right, my next visit, we can talk about the difference between those kinds of stories and the ones we've been talking about, but that's there as well. But yeah, no, we'll or, to, but we'll the, the majority of, of articles and information and everything is designed for novelists and screenwriters. So, but that's, I'm glad that you brought that up, the book up, because a lot of people who listen might be exactly in that position and looking for precisely that, that type of resource. So this has been a great conversation, and I appreciate your time, Michael, and also everyone listening in uh, on the Internet, wherever you might be. Um, so if you want more information about my uh, conferences, my speaking, my books, you can go to stephenjames.net or storyconferences.com. For more information about our guests and to check out other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.